can you imagine if you had to pay someone $100,000 to install Dropbox on your computer? Dropbox would go nowhere. So that's the other reason that I talk about preparing building at the edge for cloud is we've got to remove these barriers to entry for customers to create value from their data, whether it be at a cloud level, whether it be at a single building level. And I see it as a big roadblock to these SaaS providers, the companies wanting to do FDD as a SaaS and this and that. That whole process has slowed down because of the limitations of access to data. So for them to go in and connect with a building, they may have to be putting some infrastructure in up front, customers spending 40, 50 grand, and it slows the whole process down. You're listening to the Beyond Buildings podcast, where we talk to innovative leaders on how they create optimal value in a smart world context. We combine strategy and technology talk to absorb reality, embrace uncertainty, and to go from path dependency to path creation. It's smart cities, it's smart buildings, it's data strategies, it's construction, real estate, and industry 4.0. And most of all, it's smart people. And remember, it's the data that you don't have that will change your life. With your host, the future shaper, the ecosystem architect, Nicholas Wern. Welcome to the Beyond Buildings podcast. And today we're talking to David Blanche from Queensland in Australia. David, introduce yourself, why you're here. Uh, maybe you don't know that, but how you ended up here at least. And then we can talk why you're here as well. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, sure, man. So I'm the CTO for VAE Group and a company called Bitpool. Started in the industry about 15 years ago started in building automation and slowly progressed through to where we are today, which is integration platforms, everything, technology and buildings, and certainly been on a bit of a journey with the buildings industry when it comes to technology, for sure. What is your background before 15 years or during the 15 years as well, I guess? Yeah. So I started out as a air conditioning mechanic, funnily enough, but I was always passionate about building automation and technology. And then I sort of slowly progressed through sort of done a lot of building automation projects and always had a background in software development and very passionate about technology. And I've just sort of been, I've just gone with the flow of the industry, to be honest. It's always been passionate about solving problems for customers, I suppose. That's where a lot of my skill set comes from, especially around software development, really using that as a mechanism to solve problems. And that's sort of where I typically start with any customer is before we talk about technology, what problem are we trying to solve? And then using technology to solve those problems? Yeah, absolutely. Like my view on technology is it's just a tool. It's, it's almost like a, a hammer to a carpenter, hammer to a blacksmith, that sort of thing. I think it's interesting. The dynamic in the industry at the moment is people believe that technology is what actually solves the problem, but I hold the opposite view. I think it's actually people in that mix that ah, using technology in the right way, possibly. Right. Yeah, correct. It's if you think about it, you wouldn't say I'm going to go and buy a hammer to build a house. It's sometimes <laughs> flawed, but that's the conversation. I sometimes I challenge like the big OEMs and things who come out with their latest box or their latest thing. And it's like, okay, that's just the, the tool. Like where's the people, how are we bring people into this industry, bringing in new ideas to, to get to these points. Yeah. I think that's great. I'm onboarding all these interns right now for my company, as well as employees. And I showed them this evolutionary graph where you have monkey caveman, whatever, <laughs> and they're using a stick at some point, right? It's just a stick. AI, blockchain, digital twins, hammers, it's just a tool. And where people are good at using tools, we're not necessarily smart <laughs> about a lot of other things, but we're pretty good at using tools. And that's sort of going back to where I started. When we started this MSI journey, started with unlocking customers from proprietary systems. We were, we're, we're light with Tritium, obviously, for that. But that's where the journey began 
was this unlocking of proprietary systems and opening up technology in buildings. And then it quickly snowballed into, well, let's connect the lifts, let's connect the security. On average, we connect about 40 different technology services within buildings onto a converged network and then extracting all of that data. But all of that is just noise. I challenge my guys with this, which is the customer isn't buying cool tech, right? Like a customer doesn't go, I just want cool tech. They're actually buying the outcome, which is community collaboration and solving like the real problems that they're trying to solve. As an industry, what we've done is we've tried to, to lock that down. Even as an industry group sort of thing, we've locked these customers down, even with backnet and things like that. We've locked down the building tech space where new people can't participate, right? Like if you go and get a software developer straight out of university and you try to show them backnet, they just go, what is this? Like, why are you guys working with 50 year old protocols? Like where's the rest API and things? No, it's the same when I talk to Brian Turner, getting data out of data centers and getting it out for building automation systems. Again, you know, here's BACnet, do whatever you can with it. What is this, right? So they also <laughs> do like the converged network type. They use GraphQL so that IT people can actually work with that and hiring software developers, all these kind of things. So no, but I definitely agree. The way we met through that post on LinkedIn, where you're using Microsoft tools, to create some kind of smart building per se. And your argument is also like the smart building is more of like a platform or a mindset to add exactly what you've been talking about. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your approach there. I get this conversation all the time where customers are trying to define what a smart building is. And it's a classic question that you ask, I feel, because everyone's talking about technology and things like that. But a smart building really enables, in my view, this community of people to come in and innovate. If you talk about how smart a building could be, the smartest building is the one that just allows people to freely come in and solve problems with technology. See people doing smart building, locking systems down and removing that ability. That's not a smart building in my mind. So in that post, I drive on that point about the open source community. That problem's been solved 10 plus years ago. You can jump on GitHub right now and download everything you need to go and create an outcome. The real passionate people about open source, they don't think of the technology. They're talking about enabling people to go and solve problems. And I think that's where I align to. I think our industry is very behind. In that post, I talk about the skills gap and the skill shortage. We've actually created this problem ourselves. When we say open, customer says, I want an open solution. They're actually not saying they want an open protocol. They're saying they want the openness to allow people to participate and create value for them. That's actually what they're asking for. So I tried to hit on that in that post. I just feel we've got to get back to opening these buildings up and allowing different skill sets to come in. Because what happens at the moment is we're pushing all of this onto the building automation guys. We're pushing all of this onto traditional building services, but we may want to bring a data science in. We may want to bring in a, a full stack developer to build a mobile app. And if we can't do that, then it's not a smart building, in my view. It's a dumb building. I love this. This has been my passion or mission ever since I entered this industry seven years ago. So that was through BackNet, actually, BackNet Web Services. And then I understand that you can have one API to the building in a RESTful, using RESTful, and then OAuth, secure communication in and out. And that in itself, like seven years ago, it was kind of unique to use that. BackNet Web Services wasn't used that much, and I don't think it is still either. Maybe BackNet Secure Connect is better. So that company was using backnet web services and then IoT, and then basically harmonizing the IoT feed as backnet objects and backnet devices. So if you looked at a building, everything would be backnet devices, right? From a RESTful API. That for me was really, really good. But we talked about this converged network layer, 
OT, IT, IoT, elevators, all these kind of things into one API. And you mentioned that before, a little bit nerdy here. Are you using GraphQL or is it RESTful APIs? How do you expose that data from a technology standpoint? I'd start by saying we work with our customer and essentially whatever suits them, if they want GraphQL, if they want Haystack, this is the whole thing about being open is we go through a pretty stringent discovery process, especially when a customer comes to us and said, I want Haystack as an example. We'll challenge why they want Haystack and then that may take us to brick or it may be their own ontology. We're heavily aligned with MQTT, I'll be honest, like. I feel like MQTT is the answer for the buildings industry. And the only reason I say that is everyone's trying to get to cloud. All of the major cloud companies support MQTT. It's extremely fast and light and secure. And most people are familiar with it. I mean, the challenge that I see, and I'm not definitely not uh, ragging on Haystack here by any means, but when you give a software developer the Haystack API, there's an absolute learning curve that they need to go through to be able to use that. I think it's a great API to have. I think it, it definitely adds a lot of value, but I think for us as being an MSI, our job is to actually be agile. And if a customer wants to use GraphQL, then we do that. If they want to use MQTT, we do that. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. It's just means to an end going back to the stick, right? So correct. this is interesting though, because as in MQTT, I'm more in favor. Well, it depends. Everything is a stepping stone or this curve or whatever you want to call it. But you know, Kafka? Yeah. Yeah. I love Kafka. I first was introduced to Kafka like two to three years ago. You know, everything that Confluent does and these companies, I mean, I absolutely love the possibilities of end streaming and the schema registries and all these kind of things. From where in terms of data throughput output from buildings today, that's definitely strapping on a flying car when you're sort of like learning to crawl. But there's a question at the end of this rant as well. So you said that people are going to cloud. What do you think about distributed intelligence? Not sending data to the cloud, but actually doing more stuff in the actual building instead of sending it out from a portfolio perspective? My view is I've always taken a hybrid approach. I definitely think you need to do a lot of things at the edge. If I showed you our architecture, we use Kafka in building. So we'll use Kafka in building to pipeline data and then be selective about what we want to send to cloud. If a customer is going to cloud, one of the things I see with customers that go to cloud is they try to send 200,000 data points up there, but only use 5,000. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot we can do in building, but what my passion is we need to prepare buildings for that journey. We're not even preparing buildings at the moment for that. So what you get is a customer come along and say, Hey, we're working in AWS or we're working in Azure. We want to use something like teams. And the answer is, well, we can't do that because the smarts aren't in the building. So when we do these large scale integration projects, we do that data pipelining on prem. I mean, there's a very sophisticated server cluster that we deploy, but the other challenge at the moment is getting that distribution out because you'll have certain services that don't have the sophistication and then other services that do. So recently we did um, some smart bathroom stuff and that was all MQTT, great on-prem broker, push it into there. But then you're dealing with HVAC controls and it's all backnet. You've got to translate that data from backnet to something. So I'm very passionate about distributed control, but I just don't think the industry is there yet where you can have this distributed architecture in the building and then access each of those edge devices as needed, you know? Now, I agree that it's definitely not there, but should we leapfrog over, go to cloud and go directly towards setting up this hybrid structure as well as, you know, focusing more on distributed first intelligence. And that's how we set it up, preparing for the future, right? Because I'm working in manufacturing and all these kind of things. I had this speech or like this webinar the other week where we said, okay, everyone started to go to cloud 10, 20 years ago. Then they see exactly what you, what you said, sending everything, data lakes, turning into data swamps, trying to hire data scientists or AI teams. 
they can't do anything with anything basically because they don't know where it's coming from. This is like, you know, metadata tagging. There's nothing actually to be done. And then you say, oh, but maybe that goes back just to the data strategy. What I'm hearing from what you're saying, you're really, really good as in understanding the outcomes, challenging the customers, and then having an aligned data strategy for whatever it is that they're trying to do, which I really respect that. But again, like my beef with the industry (laughs) is again, that is like taking these steps because that's following someone that is trying to get out of that situation today. So all the manufacturing companies that have started sending everything to the cloud without thinking about this first, they're stuck, basically. They have to almost like redo everything that they've done for the last 10 years because they they can't get anywhere. And now again, like Kafka on the edge, distributed intelligence. So that's sort of my idea at least. And I want to vet that with you because you really know what you're talking about. As in leapfrogging, go directly to distributed, setting that up and be more future ready. I see what you're saying. For me, I always think, I suppose, big picture. And this once again, comes back to solutions for different customers. If you're a customer and you've got one building, you get distributed straight away. I would not even think about the cloud. But when you start to talk to a customer who's got a hundred properties, even if you do the distributed architecture, you've still got to orchestrate the devices. You've still got to manage the devices. It's really interesting question you pose. You've challenged me with that one already. But for me, it's exactly the opposite of what you said. If it's one building, you do it to the cloud. I don't (laughs) care. Just get the stuff up there. It's just one building. Tesla, if you have 100,000 cars, if you don't plan from that from the beginning, you're going to be in a world of hurt once you're going to do that and try to take it back to the edge if you didn't start there. So it's exactly what you said, but totally opposite. But maybe it's utopian. I don't know. Because I was in an argument with another Australian, Tyson Sauter, that now started working at Clockworks. So he basically said, well, go to the cloud first, go to the ant, O slugger, basically, get the data out, get something going, and then you can start with distributed intelligence because all these kind of things. I think that's what you're seeing as well. But again, my problem is if you do that, it's a slippery slope because it's still going to take some time to take it to the cloud. It's going to do a lot of these things. And meanwhile, the future is changing. And I see that it's moving more towards distributed intelligence. I would say too, I see a lot of people go and do a cloud deployment without any data strategy. The amount of times that I see customers with that problem, we always start at the edge. So our view when we start one of these projects as well is we're not saying that you get that it's going to connect to some sort of SaaS or Azure or AWS. It needs to be able to connect to any cloud. It needs to be able to connect to any endpoint. And I think this comes back down to, especially when you get into data-driven maintenance and FDD. My view on this is if a customer has a data lake and a data warehouse and they're pushing all their data to the cloud with some very basic ontology, I don't believe customers should be sitting there spending hundreds of thousands of dollars building up tagging models. But what they want to be able to do is onboard and offboard providers as they need to. And it should be like install, uninstall, like on a computer. That's exactly how it should be. If there's a SaaS provider out there who wants to show how they can create some value, they can come in and do a 30-day free trial because (laughs) the data is so accessible. And this comes back to, I use an analogy with a lot of customers, is can you imagine if you had to pay someone $100,000 to install Dropbox on your computer? Dropbox would go nowhere. So that's the other reason that I talk about preparing building at the edge for cloud is we've got to remove these barriers to entry customers to create value from their data, whether it be at a cloud level, whether it be at a single building level. And I see it as a big roadblock to these SaaS providers. The companies wanting to do FDD as a SaaS and this and that, that whole process is slowed down because of the limitations of access to data. So for them to go in and connect with a building, they may have to be putting some infrastructure in up front, customers spending 40, 50 grand, and it slows the whole process down. It makes it impossible to actually get started. Even if you get started, then it's a silo. 
So even if you have like then, you know, FDD tool, it's the energy side. Our initial discussion was about smart buildings, not just smart energy analytics for something <laughs> that is over here. So it's all these things in between, but it goes back to also a fellow Australian, Braveheart. Yeah, yeah, Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you remember at the end of Braveheart, right? He screams, freedom. And that's what we're talking <laughs> about, right? Isn't it? We're just talking about freedom for the owners to do whatever they want. If they want to do this, they should be able to do that. Whilst now they're unable to basically do anything. It's a little bit more than that. When we say freedom, someone will come in and put an open system in and they'll say, yeah, anyone can work on it from the buildings industry. Where I want to see the industry is where anyone can work on it. So I do a lecture at, at uh, Sydney University once a year with young people who are trying to get into the buildings industry. They love prop tech. They're coming at it from a completely different angle. They've got some software development capability. They're, they're entrepreneurial. They want to go out and make a difference. But the limiting factor in buildings is the tech. I really see it as a big roadblock with this skills crisis that is being seen. I talked to a lot of people in the US, it's the same there. And it's the same in not only in buildings, it's basically <laughs> everywhere, to be honest. How to cross that generational gap and you know, keep the knowledge that the old people have, being able to seamlessly transfer that to younger generations, as well as systems. It's between this seamless knowledge transfer. That's what I'm all about, interoperable way. It's challenging. I had a presentation I did a little while ago and I did some research and I, I didn't know this myself. But I did some research on Modbus and Modbus is close to 70 years old. And don't get me wrong, Modbus is a great protocol, but that's the story of buildings. We're dealing with 70 year old protocols and look at the likes of Microsoft and Google and even Amazon. And the reason they haven't come into our industry and absolutely disrupted the hell out of it is because we did such a good job at locking these buildings down. Yeah. I see this also in smart buildings or like the building automation industry. Everyone else has it better. You mentioned Google or Amazon or whatever, they coming in and they also think that they know better. And that is also actually a problem because you probably work with them or, you know, come in touch with these kind of companies, so to say, they have no idea about building automation. They have zero idea and just think like, oh, let's just open up an API and then you can talk to the whole building. Everyone has tried that for quite some time and failed miserably. It is like you said, right? I mean, it's probably because the building automation industry has been so fantastic. Having this vendor lock-in proprietary system that has been super hard to do it. But at the same time, buildings are not that easy because it's not just one proprietary layer. It's lighting, it's evac, it's all of these kind of things that in itself is a jungle. I know quite a lot about smart buildings. I don't know that much about lighting, to be honest. I don't know a lot about elevators. And I think it's more getting the systems, getting subject matter experts, as well as younger generations, for them to play nice with each other. I think that's the most important thing. Okay, so here's a question again. So like the Microsoft play, because we touched upon it and then we didn't do much about it. Can you just explain a little bit more what that is? I'll explain a little bit how it started, but our Bitpool product, it's backed into AWS. So we're like an AWS house. We're not a Microsoft house. But where the problem started was a customer was talking to me about how do we solve this problem? We just want simple insights. We want to be able to see we want to distribute it. And I got to thinking, if you look at the buildings industry, we push these tools onto people that don't align with their business outcomes, right? Like if you look right now, everyone's been in lockdown at some point in time. And I was thinking, well, everyone's on teams. Like, why don't we use teams in building? It just made sense. It was such a simple thing. And then really I just started building it out. I mean, the whole solution took us about four hours to build. 
But that's because you've done the legwork of having a converged network layer and you had access to the data. If you hadn't done that, it wouldn't have taken four hours. No, the data that we access for the proof of concept, the data warehouse had about 500,000 points on prem in it. It had a pipeline, it had MQTT broker. So really all we were doing was just MQTT straight out of the site into a Node-RED instance. I used Node-RED to push through to the MySQL for the Power BI. And then we used Node-RED to format the webhook into Teams and away we went. But did this exist like a GitHub uh, repository somewhere, this approach? I've got to get some time to put that together because I knew that was yeah, going to be the question I mean, like that, that everyone asked. Yeah. I love that. I think this is one of the first podcasts where we actually talk about how this is done and how it should be done. He's utilizing Node-RED for the ones that don't know what it is. It's basically like uh, Sedona, but you know, more shuffling data from the buildings to the cloud as in drag and drop tool getting these kind of things together. So it's really easy for someone to understand and learn fast how to do it, I guess. There's a bit more to Node-RED though, but I'm surprised that the building industry hasn't picked this up and really ran with it. We're at Trinium House, but we develop a lot of product on Node-RED. We actually do projects for customers completely using open source tech, like no proprietary tech at all. The reason that Node-RED was so attractive to us, I mean, we develop custom code and things like that, but you talk about how do you bring a BMS application engineer and upskill them to be able to deal with API. It's such a familiar tool. If you do want to write some sophisticated code in there, you can actually develop your own nodes. It's just such a great gateway product or software package, I should say. Gateway drug to the future, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's hardware agnostic. You can run it from a Raspberry Pi to server to cloud, whatever. It's such a great tool. And I think more people need to use it and push it. It's definitely growing a lot of legs as well. You know, I think 2.0 just came out. The company that I was working with them, that's how I fell into the building automation industry. And then I was seeking all these like acting CEO of that company. I mean, they used tools like Raspberry Pi, like Node-RED, backend web services, encapsulating all IoT streams, well, backend devices, backend objects, having a cloud instance. So everything was backend everywhere. So it's really good for, you know, traditional people, so to say, to understand what was going on in terms of, again, like devices and objects. But for IT people, they could use Node-RED. And it was like a RESTful API, it was secure communication. But the problem that I didn't understand was that no one really from the building automation side wanted to do this. And it was too early on. And then there was no one really from the IT perspective either. And the problem is, again, you say like you're a Tritium house, right? If some other vendor would come in, maybe like seven years ago and say like, hey, we have this Raspberry Pi product, we've got Node-RED, we can do this, this, and this. What we heard then was that, yeah, but we're using Tritium. We're using Distech, we're using Siemens, Schneider, et cetera. So we can't really do anything. Then it might be on the R&D side, but right now we're busy. So it's not just a technology. For me, it's really hard to do something new, I think. I think Tritium's been a great product for the industry. If you look at all of the vendors out there opening up that framework and allowing you to develop, but I do say to my customers, it's still a proprietary system. And people look at me and they're shocked. They're like, oh, what? And it's like, it's still owned by a company. You've got to pay your dealership fees and, and all of the rest of it with that. So it's still a proprietary system. We use the saying that you've got to eat your own dog food. At the end of the day, if you're truly open, it, it's open source code. It's freely available tooling. I just think that's the transformation that the industry is going to go through. You can see it already happening now with some of the repos out there in GitHub where you got back into MQTT and all of this stuff happening. You said it yourself almost. Well, someone needs to do the converse network layer. If someone does that and doesn't have an offering on top, like you do, I guess, 
then it would be really, really possible to really democratize smart building creation as well as innovation at scale. And because I actually got this question, I think it was yesterday. So they want to do basically what Sedona wanted to do, but it was Tritium that killed it. Speaking of uh, Tritium, they were doing exactly what you're saying right now. Companies started utilizing it, creating this openness. So it could be a community. So that's why they killed it. So basically the question is when this happens, how would companies make money? It was interesting before I jumped on the podcast, it came up in my newsfeed. I see Grafana. Grafana just got a $3 billion valuation. And you go, how does a company get a $3 billion valuation when they give their software away for free? They do other things. I think they're in partnership with Amazon as well. I see we can get like self-hosted Grafana instances. It's a good question. I actually don't know the answer, to be honest. You see the traditional play, a lot of open source software, you'll have a community edition, and then you have like an enterprise or a paid version, which comes with a lot of features. You look at Tritium AX and a life and you go, what a great opportunity for Tritium to open source AX. Like it's coming to end of life. I understand that they want to push people to Niagara Four and what have you. The companies who understand what's happening out in this industry and are fundamentally prepared to pivot will benefit the most. And that's what I talked about at the start with the disruption. There's absolutely disruption coming to our industry. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. The classic analogy is the Kodak sort of scenario. You don't want to be the Kodak. I love Kodak, yeah. It's a Kodak yeah, yeah. moment. Do you want it or not? <laughs> Through COVID, we developed that people counting solution for a customer. And that was purely built on open source tech. Very basic too. So MQTT, MySQL instance, Node-RED on board in a Dell Edge gateway. Very simple. Anyone can access it. Anyone can use it. That's how it should be. For me, open source is one thing. Do you know what passive logic? Yeah, absolutely. We had disagreements in the past where they're more like Apple-esque as in proprietary, but they control their own ecosystem. And they, of course, have open APIs and portability. But he also said, which I agree afterwards, you need the stability. I said the same with Confluent. Kafka is also open source. You can do these kind of things, but you need maintenance, you need SLAs, you need all these kind of things. And if you just use open source where there's no one throw to choke that everyone loves in this industry, then it's a problem. So I think building it on open source is one thing. Open APIs, absolutely a must have. And you know, the conversion networks in the bottom, but I think that there is an app store coming. If it doesn't exist, it's definitely going to be here pretty soon, which is going to be maybe David Blanche's GitHub repository. That's going to be one, the first app that you can plug and play with. But it's interesting though. It's interesting what is happening. I love these kind of conversations because everyone thinks that everyone has to agree. You can have a yin and yang scenario. And I'm not going to say good versus evil, but I could sit here and be an absolute advocate for open source and that's fine. And then there could be another opposing view, which is completely um, towards proprietary. Now I want to actually make a comment too. I actually don't have an issue with proprietary systems. I mean, if you look at a customer may come in and say, you know what, I want brand X fire panel, CCTV security, HVAC, and I just want to go to that company, pay my fees and be in their ecosystem and it works. And that's great. There is a flip side to all of this. And that's where I think you're talking with the open APIs, which I actually think is a must as well. But you will get that community of people who will drive open source. And one of the comments I make to our customers a lot is, we won't lock you into our technology, we'll lock you into our people. And that's about that because I really think that people determine the outcome and it's not just people within our business, it's how you interact with a whole community of building services providers, right? When we do these large scale MSI jobs, we do the converged network and the integration platform and people think 
that there's like this technical sophistication to it, which there is, but 80% of our role is bringing people together and helping each other solve each other's problems. And funnily enough, it's somewhat of a non-technical role, herding cats, so to speak, because the hydraulic guy, he may not have that technical expertise to bring his system onto a converged network and push data up to some sort of uh, data ecosystem or whatever it is. So I definitely think the future is with people. That's for sure for me. The future is with people. I love that. Maybe that should be the tagline for this episode. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the open source stuff, for me, when you compare these two, right? You want to go with brand X, they're going to do everything. But the speed of innovation for their R&D team, which might be 10 people, 50 people, 100 people, 500 people, whatever that is, it can never, 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 never compare to 100,000 people working day and night on solving problems and spinning out new stuff, right? You're locking yourself into the past pretty strong when you're doing these kind of things. At any given time, you should always have the freedom to onboard whatever people you want, whatever system that you want, irrespectively. And I think that is a problem when you're locking yourself in super hard to these solutions. If you have a converged network, fair enough. But I mean, everything should be modular, robust, attractive, all these kind of things. AI, <laughs> this is the cool stuff here. So this podcast now is going to be a little bit more about AI. If you listen to all the episodes we had, basically you have like 99% of how to create smart buildings anyway, right? The name is Beyond Buildings. So how do we actually enable this ecosystem and how do we do that faster? And even if it's a future of people, where does AI sit? If you asked me this question even three years ago, I'd be like, you're dreaming with AI. Stop talking buzz talk, you know? Recently, I did an experiment. AWS have some machine learning tools and some very sophisticated stuff as a service in there. And what was very interesting is the same problem that we saw with the, the Teams example. When you have access to data, there's these companies out there that are providing these. I mean, even with TensorFlow in Node-RED, there's, you can use AI. I mean, people think AI is so far away, but it's actually so close. It's just, we haven't figured out how to use it yet and apply it in buildings. And every technology, you have to be able to apply it to solve a logical problem. So the little bit of AI that I played with, we, we were just doing it to compare a VAV box operation. So we were saying, okay, here's five years worth of data to train yourself on a cooling only VAV. Now go and compare it to this VAV and tell us where it should be operating. If I look at AI, probably very low level in buildings, let's go really low level. PID loops, a great AI replacement. Optimal start stop, optimal start stop in buildings, a great AI replacement. I think when people talk about AI, the, the challenging piece is people think for the stars, right? They're like, AI is going to control the entire building. That's a really, really good point. Instead of you just looking at smart buildings and AI, well, look at a, a smart component in a building. Let's start reusing that with AI in an interoperable way and then just go from there. It's the same when people talk about machine learning, like I look at all of the FDD stuff and I think that's great, but it's still rules that are programmed by people. And I know I just got off the bandwagon about talking about people, but when you talk about machine learning, it's more about anomaly detection. So it's looking at large data sets and, and picking up anomalies. I think that's really where customers are going to be in the not so distant future. I can only talk to AWS. I know Azure do some things in Google as well, but with AWS, I mean, you're paying next to nothing for this service. The price point is so low, there's literally no barriers to entry. You can just get on there, click through and fumble your way through and get an outcome. That's what's really amazing to me where these technologies are coming to. It's so easy to get into. So it's easy to get into the tools from an IT perspective, but still these converged networks, they're not readily available for all 
assets in the world, right? Before we're going to create smart buildings, I think we got to create these digital buildings first. Exactly what you're saying, you know, the people components. We got to bring them with us and not leave them behind. And that's also solving the skill shortage gap. So I think like we still have some challenges to go. Are we doing this fast enough? I honestly don't think we are. I have some very robust conversations, which is customer pays a million dollars for a converged network, but gets a poor quality solution versus a customer who pays a million dollars and gets a great quality solution. I think sometimes the industry doesn't self a disservice and that's around procurement, right? Like when the way we procure technology in buildings, especially competitive markets, there's always this appetite to drive the price down. The cheaper solution is the better solution. And then there's this battle of trying to justify it, right? So you're as a quality provider, you're saying, Hey, I'm trying to justify why my solution is better, but the customer may have been burnt two or three projects ago. And they're like, well, yeah, I've tried that before. I've spent a million dollars before and I didn't get what I wanted. So I'm just going to go with the cheapest. There's a real challenge around that, which is more transparency. We are very transparent with the price. We don't mind saying what margins we make, just extremely transparent about price. But I think the point I'm driving on there is customers have to see some value for the investment. That's where the challenge is at the moment. Customers are investing money and not getting that value and outcome. So then they become disillusioned with technology and they say, you know what, a smart building is actually a dumb building without that. How do we replicate that? When all the other MSIs in the US or in Sweden or in Germany or in Tanzania, whatever, how do we actually make all these fantastic examples? The ingredients are out there, whether it's in Amazon or Azure or whatever, we have the ingredients in terms of people. We have the ingredients in terms of systems. We have the ingredients in terms of actual buildings, recipes. How do we actually get them out? Recently, we won a significant project, a large scale commercial office building, tagged to be the smartest building in the world. And it was a significant dollar value. We were working directly for a customer and our proposal got sent out to a whole heap of builder clients who are going to be building the building. And then that got out into the industry and everyone was coming and be going, um, Hey, this is really bad. Like your proposal's gone now, all your numbers are in there, all of your IP, all of this stuff is now out in the market. And my response to that was, well, I don't really care because I know no one else can do what we're doing. And then they, they challenged me. They said, well, why can no one else do what you're doing? I said, because this solution is unique for this customer. This technology, yes, we're using all these open source components and we're using these products, but it goes back to the beginning, right? Tailor-made data strategies almost. It might be MQTT, it might be Haystack, it might be BACnet. So if someone would try to do this for someone else, it would be, you know, I heard this the other day, putting a Tesla dashboard on a Beetle or vice versa, right? It could be very, very different. That's a great answer. I think that the way to speed it up though is transparency because what we see a lot as well is, and we talk to a lot of consultants in our market, consultants aren't working with this stuff every day, right? They're specifying it. And I think you would know what it's like, especially in software development. You've got to be using the technology, deploying the technology to be proficient at it. I really think it's a leadership void at the moment. We, there needs to be a lot more transparency and a lot more people getting out into the market and just opening up. I know there's a big list of things for me to do on GitHub, I've been very slack, but we have to be firstly transparent with customers about pricing and solution and just being completely open book with that. We need to do that with consultants and our technology providers who are leading in this space need to be getting out with consultants and showing them different ways to do things. Because what we're doing with the technology we're using in the software development world, it'd be like, that's sort of like kindergarten stuff, right? Like, it's not like we're doing crazy stuff, but 
it's just so foreign to our industry. So we have to be able to show people new ways of doing things. Okay, so a more transparent industry, future like people first mindset, and then sharing is caring. It's community. Do you follow Wall Street bets? A little bit, yeah, yeah. The premise of that was, how can these guys do this, right? And it was a community of people using technology to influence the market. And if you look at that, Reddit is a technology and it was a tool. It was just the mechanism. To bring people to... together around XYZ subjects and then making stuff happen, right? No, but this goes back to exactly what I said about the open source versus proprietary systems as well. You had the best proprietary system. And if you don't have the community, like they have like the global community. I love that you brought that up because it's exactly my <laughs> mindset as well. Fantastic. I love it. Are you doing anything with crypto yourself? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. The next topic should be crypto-based, blockchain-influenced, AI-driven real estate. I really think there's a future in buildings around smart contracts. If you look at energy performance contracting, it's a great mechanism for smart contracts. But once again, you're working in a world that's quite aged, right? <laughs> it has to be people like you and your company and now the other MSIs globally and also the super MSIs that do the legwork of getting it to the conversion network to that platform. If we don't have that platform, anything else is virtually like impossible to create. So I think like the future is definitely hopefully better than the past, whether that is for people or just for AI bots or systems, who knows, we'll see. But I mean, fantastic conversation, David. We have to beat this uh, the next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is there anything that you want to leave the uh, listeners with? How can they get a hold of you as well? Oh, look, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. What I want to leave people with is the future is people. Companies can sell whatever box they want to sell, but if we don't invest in people, if we don't enable innovation from people, we're going to be where we were 50 years ago. We're still going to be talking about how we get access to data. And we're probably not going to have enough people to do that, by the way, because of the decline in the industry. But I really think the future is people, it's community, this sense of openness and sharing. And I just think that's very foreign to the industry at the moment. And that definitely needs to change to speed up what we were talking about before. That's what will enable speed. So, yeah. Perfect. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining and uh, for you listening. This was David Blanche. Remember to like, subscribe, do all these kind of things. And thank you so much again, David. Great to have you here. Yeah, great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to the Beyond Buildings podcast. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. And if you like this episode, make sure to tune in to the next one and also see if other episodes could be something for you. Your host, the master of the metaverse, Nicholas Wern. 